Welcome everyone. This is the final session, somewhat rescheduled, of Working Knowledge with um, Dr. Davidsby Coleman. This is been a this is the fourth session of of the fourth session series, and it's been a pleasure learning with everyone since uh, I guess look the beginning of March. And it's a and with that, um, I'm, and before I give the floor to Davidsby, I just want to ask one housekeeping note, please. Feel free to accept the promotion to panelists, to ask questions, to speak. All I ask is when you are not speaking, to please keep your microphones muted so that we avoid any weird audio cross chatter. I will be sharing um, pro sheets in both the Zoom and the Facebook live chat. And people in both chats should feel free to ask questions. And with that, hey, hi, good evening. Great. Thank you, Kayla, and thank you all for being here. Uh, I, I want to start by just apologizing for not being able to teach last week. I think something happened after, as, as the COVID restrictions started to lift, I and basically my entire family suddenly got sick and I lost my voice, so I wasn't able to teach. I'm very sorry about that. Um, but I'm glad to be with you tonight, and I appreciate um, you arranging your schedule such that you're able to, to be here tonight as well. So this is the last class, um, and because it's the last class, I want to do something a little bit different. Um, I want to look at two separate ideas with you, one connected to the to the third session um, and one and one kind of disconnected. Um, and then I want to open it up for questions. Uh, it may be that we run a little bit shorter this time than we have in other classes. Um, and you're welcome to ask questions either about this class or about anything that you've learned over the last you know, uh, four sessions. Um, so let's do it like that. OK, so just a kind of small refresher of where we came from. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at um, hierarchies of labor the ways that certain kinds of work can explicitly or implicitly end up being devalued, both in general culture, also within Jewish society. Um, and one of the things that happens when work ends up being devalued is there is a possibility that the people who do that work end up being devalued as well. Um, I wanna to start today with um, an example of this happening in practice that um, is not gonna start with Pesach, but I hope we'll get us to Pesach. And, and I hope that you know this is something which maybe you can bring to your Seder tables uh, this year. Um, so let me start with a source that that's going to seem a little bit distant from this. Um, one of the, you know, there, there's a huge number of um, original halakhic questions that come up in the 19th century around new technologies. One of the most interesting is around the telegraph. Right? The telegraph allows people to communicate uh, faster than, you know, any person or animal can travel. Uh, so information is now faster than, than human beings. Um, and people are able to communicate information in, in totally new ways. Now, one of the ways that telegraphs are often used in the 19th century because they were incredibly expensive um, is to communicate basically sad news. Um, actually, telegraphs end up having this terrible reputation uh, in the 19th and even in the 20th century because you know, if you get a telegraph, it's probably because something terrible happens. Uh, it's not true for businesses. Businesses use it for their own reasons, but, but you know, if you receive a telegram, um, you know, it's not necessarily the best thing to happen. Um, which means that a lot of the response that we have, a lot of the, um, the rabbinic um, the things we have about telegraphs are about, about death, basically, about like what happens if I receive a telegram about somebody dying. Um, and so that, that's the case happening here, right? This is uh, Rabbi Abdullah Samech writing in Baghdad. Um, and he's writing specifically about what happens if you receive news that a relative has passed away and you receive it via, via telegram. Now, what's the issue here? The issue here is that... Um, a telegram is not just communicated, you know, like uh, like messages are communicated through email, right? If you receive something through email, there's no human beings involved in the process um, between the time it leaves your computer and the time it receives somebody else's computer. Maybe there's humans who establish the systems, but there's no human being who's checking your email along the way, 
Um, at least in America, there isn't. In, in some other repressive regimes, maybe there is. Um, this is not true for telegraphs, right? Telegraphs um, go from station to station. Um, this, uh, when, you, when you submit a telegraph message, you have to have it transcribed by a clerk. That clerk sends it to the next station. Maybe the next clerk has to make sure they get the message correct and then you know, move it on and on and on and on. So a telegraph can move quickly, a telegram can move quickly, but even so, there's many people who are involved in the process of getting the message from point A to point B. So the question here is, what do I do with messages that have halakhic importance if the people transmitting the message are not Jewish? Um, now, why is that a problem? Here it says, I'm gonna read it in English just um, for the sake of time. Um, it says, uh, so the, first, the question is, does one go into mourning because of a death note is transmitted by telegram? And Rabbi Abdullah Samach answers, the Panima Erot brings clear evidence from the Shulchan Aruch regarding a situation where a certain Gentile merchant writes that the recipient's brother has died, that one is not obligated to begin mourning. Meaning we have, uh, we have evidence, there is precedent for the idea that um, messages like this, messages about the death of a relative that are transmitted by a Gentile, do not count the same. Um, now, if the Gentile merchant had told him face to face, it would be valid. Nevertheless, a letter is not valid unless he knows that it was written by a Jew. That is to say, there's kind of degrees here, right? Um, there's a difference between if you if a, a Gentile is kind of you know um, staring you in the face and saying to you, "This is what happened," presumably because you can kind of measure whether or not they're telling the truth. Um, if it's a letter, you kind of can't get that information, and so you don't trust it. Meaning, if you receive this information then you, know, you don't start mourning practices, right? You don't, you don't uh, tear Korea, you don't sit shiver, like that, that, none, none of that stuff happens. So this is actually a big deal um, to say that you don't trust this material evidence. Now, I wanna bracket for a second, I wanna name, but then bracket the question of like, does this make sense in the first place to say that you know, all Gentiles are not trustworthy um, to communicate this information? I see that point, it's important. I think for the purposes of this conversation, it's not so relevant, but it is important that this is kind of the baseline assumption for this entire conversation. So the question is, all right, we have a situation where not just one person, but many people, many clerks are transmitting a message by telegram. It's kind of like a letter. Um, can you trust it? So he says, well, how about this? There's a great financial cost to writing a telegraph, and we do not fear that a person would send false information for this purpose. So basically the answer is, no, we don't care. As well, it is unthinkable that the person in charge of the telegraph would not investigate the sender's identity, for he would not write a telegram in the name of any person in the world unless he is absolutely sure that the sender is indeed the person named, and he also demands from him proof of identity before writing his name. For were this not the case, people would not be able to survive, for it is an everyday event in every city that money is withdrawn by telegram, and if so, a poor man would come dressed in important clothes, pretending to be a wealthy and well-known gentleman, and he could write a telegram to another city to the partners of that same wealthy man and receive whatever he wanted, thereby earning many thousands of golden dinars. So basically, why is it okay to accept the telegram? It's kind of like, you know, it doesn't, it's, um, it's kind of like an appeal to common sense, basically. Um, should we actually disbelieve a system that is used so frequently on such a regular basis every single day? Um, if we treated the telegram as basically being not trustworthy, then all kinds of terrible things could happen, right? You could have you know, money being transferred in the wrong direction. You could have political messages uh, being mistransmitted. All kinds of terrible things could happen. And so if, you know, if it's good enough for everybody else, it should be good enough for us. We shouldn't be concerned that our messages are being tampered with um, 
we basically think that the system for verifying the authenticity of the person sending the message and then the system for transmitting it from station to station is basically a good system. So we think these messages are valid and have halakhic status. And then he goes on to say, also the telegram is used every day to appoint kings and depose them. Several times it has occurred in our city that our great minister has been dismissed by telegram. And if there is any chance that it could be forged and chaos would result for some lazy person to go to the telegraph office and present themselves as a messenger of the king, and in that way depose great ministers from their positions. Rather, it is simple and known that it is completely impossible to fake a signature on the telegraph, for so it was made secure from the very beginning at the Council of the Great Kings, presumably some kind of uh, policy form. Therefore, the person in charge of the telegraph is obligated before sending the telegram to investigate thoroughly until he is convinced that the person is indeed who he claims to be. And that being the case, it is as though the Jews signed on the telegram is himself testifying before us. Okay. What's, I want to point out uh, a couple of things about this response. One is that um, this is an appeal not really based on halakhic sources. He's not saying, well, we trust him because, you know, there's this, you know, there's this Gemara, which hasn't been used before that suggests maybe it's, a, no, it's not that. It's an appeal based on kind of the evidence that he sees before him and the way that the telegram appears in the culture itself. That's important because what is basically happening is that he is importing, that is Abdullah Samach is importing whole, um, wholesale into his response and into his tshuva, this way of thinking about telegraphs that appears in the broader culture and saying like, this is how the culture uses the telegraph. So we're gonna use the telegraph the same way. What is noticeable about that is that, okay, well, this is, you know, it's great news in terms of communicating, um, you know, terrible messages about people dying, fine. Um, but it also does something important to the clerks involved in the process, right? Because what this basically does is it takes the clerks who are transmitting the message from the message, who are presumably the vast majority of them are not Jewish, and says, you know, for purposes of our conversation, their status as not being Jewish is not relevant. They're simply part of the machine. They're cogs in the machine. And as a result of that, we are comfortable giving them a kind of different status. What's important about this is that this is an example of a um, of a of, a, of a, a Jewish opinion of a halakhic opinion that is formed really on the basis of something outside, a kind of cultural aspect outside, um, and a pretty pretty significant cultural um, trend, which is to treat human beings in this communication process as not really being human beings because their work is treated as so automatic and because they do a good job 99.9% of the time. So basically, we don't treat them as human beings at all. So you know, I, I, want, I want to state that because it's not, it's not uncommon for this to happen, right? It's often the case that, um, that, that rabbis who are thinking through answers to a lot of questions are in conversation with the world around them. And this is an example of that. Now, why am I bringing you this case? Why am I bringing this example? I'm actually bringing it to you because I want to talk to you about Pesach. Because Pesach is a great situation, a really important situation, where we have a question about whether to treat the people involved in a process, in a production process, as being human beings or as being basically cogs in the machine. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, you know, when we talk about the difference between chametz and matzah, we often talk about the difference basically being one of time. Now, there's a halakhic reason for this. Um, the Gemara talks about how what it takes to turn a flour water mixture into chametz is um, some, uh, some amount of time elapsing. Today, it's understood to be 18 minutes of time elapsing. And because we understand 
the difference between chametz and matzah is just being that mixture sitting there for a little while, kind of doing nothing. We have an impression in our heads that it's just a kind of passive activity. If you do nothing, then it's chametz. If you do something, it's matzah. The truth of the matter is it's kind of the opposite. That is to say, what actually defines chametz most of the time in most cultures is work. Matzah takes less work. Chametz, making bread, takes more work. And in fact, baking is an incredibly labor-intensive process. Now, exactly how labor-intensive changes from culture to culture, this is something kind of going back to that hierarchies of labor question is often hidden in part because baking when it's done at home is gendered. And so it is kind of, um, it is treated as less important, um, but also because it is sometimes done by slaves, both in Egypt, also um, in the American context, um, baking is often treated as being less important than other kinds of work. And so the effort that goes into making bread, the significant effort that goes into making bread is kind of pushed aside. This has not always been the case. Um, and here, I'm not sure if any of the people in this class uh, are joining us from, from the South right now. Um, but, you know, in the South, if you've ever been to the South, if you live in the South, there is a thing called biscuits, which is different from the way biscuits are treated elsewhere. Biscuits as being kind of like a fluffy, like a kind of creamy um, item. Um, it's kind of like a, um, a trademark um, aspect of Southern cuisine. Turns out there's a reason that biscuits are specifically connected to the South. And we have that sense already in the difference between Northern and Southern cuisine before the Civil War. Um, to understand exactly what's going on here, I wanna show you a recipe uh, from the 19th century. This is not gonna be a helpful Pesach recipe, um, but it'll be important for other purposes anyways. This is a recipe from uh, a woman writing in Philadelphia um, just before the Civil War starts. So she writes, this is a thing called Maryland biscuits, Maryland being a slave state. She says, take two quarts of sifted wheat flour, add a small teaspoon of salt, Rub into the pan of flour a large quarter of a pound of lard, also not Pesach or you know, kosher friendly, um, and gradually warm milk enough to make a very stiff dough. Knead the lump of dough long and hard and pound it on all sides with a rolling pin. Right? So it's, it's not just that you put this mixture together, but you have to knead it and pound it for a very long time. Divide the dough into several pieces, knead and pound each piece separately. This must go on for two or three hours, continually kneading and pounding. Otherwise it will be hard, tough and indigestible. Then make it into small round thick biscuits, prick them with a fork and bake them a pale brown. Great, that's the recipe. Now below this recipe, and this is like a funny thing to do in your own cookbook, right? Usually in your cookbook, the recipes are there because you're trying to say like, I think you should cook this. She has a warning basically like, don't use this recipe that I just gave you. She says, this is the most laborious of cakes and also the most unwholesome, even when made in the best manner. We do not recommend it, but there is no accounting for tastes. Children should not eat these biscuits, nor grown persons either, if they can get any other sort of bread. When living in a town where there are bakers, there is no excuse for making Maryland biscuits. Believe nobody that says they are not wholesome. Yet we have heard of families in country places where neither the mistress nor the cook knew any other preparation of wheat bread. Better to live on Indian cakes. She doesn't like this bread because she knows that these biscuits, her Maryland biscuits, are basically um, impossible to support, certainly impossible to support on a regular basis, unless they're being made by slaves. Otherwise, it simply is not economical to make something as complicated as this. And so in a very real way, you have this food object, this food item that is deeply uh, inextricably connected to, um, to slavery, um, to labor, um, to forced labor. Um, 
This I find really powerful. I find it really powerful, especially, obviously, um, in terms of thinking about Pesach um, and in terms of thinking about Pesach, not just as kind of the Jews saying, oh, you know, we don't have time. You know, I guess we'll just, you know, we'll make the matzah because it's faster to make. But actually it's kind of Jews saying like, this is a part of the shift from slavery to freedom to kind of move away from this labor intensive um, uh, substance to something that is um, that is less labor intensive. Maryland biscuits come because there's no yeast added to them. Um, I think I think they are probably chametz. Yes, I mean they, they they certainly take a huge amount of work. And I would say like even if they're not chametz, they're chametz. Like this, they fall into that category. There's like something about them um, that is um, that kind of feels inherently uh, uh, wrong to eat on Pesach because of the kind of preparation that goes into this. Um, so understood this way, chametz is not just about time. It's also about work. Um, and in this way. Um, you can imagine Pesach as kind of removing yourself from forced labor. It's hard to remember this all, all, honestly because Pesach takes so much time to prepare for that like this message is like, oh, the whole point of this is to kind of feel free. But, you know, that aside, um, there is that sense of it. Um, and in this way, it's also a kind of equivalent to Sukkot, right? In the sense that there, there is a way in which um, matzah is a kind of temporary food. It's a kind of like rudimentary food um, in the way that like a sukkah is a kind of rudimentary structure. You can kind of imagine it that way as kind of like the, the bare bones of what it means to have a food in the same way that sukkah is kind of like the bare bones of what it means to have a dwelling place. So there's a kind of nice symmetry between these two. Now, the other reason that I'm giving you this example is that matzah is a really good um, food to choose if you want to talk about how easy it is to forget about the people who are involved about who are involved in food, right? Um, today, if you buy matzah in a supermarket, matzah kind of has the appearance of literally every other food in the supermarket. It's just sold like everything else. You have no idea how it's made, just like you have no idea how anything in the supermarket is made, unless you kind of are the kind of person who cares about how uh, food items are made and, and you know, investigates that. Um, there's a kind of black box behind the production of matzah as there is for every other kind of food. Um, this is kind of this is kind of a shame um, because the truth of the matter is for a long time and certainly in the 19th century, the question of how matzah is made is a huge part of understanding um, what, what matzah is supposed to be and how, how it's understood. Um, you know, I started thinking about this, you know, not just in terms of slavery, but in terms of this year and thinking about how um, a pretty large amount of the matzah in the world comes from Ukraine. Right. Uh, Ukraine is a major breadbasket, not just for uh, for Europe, but for the world. Um, Ukraine has uh, gigantic matzah factories. Um, it was shipping matzah, you know, basically right up until the war started. Um, and you can imagine, like, th these are people who are making matzah kind of in similar conditions to people who are, like, imagining that they're about to flee their homes in Egypt, right? These are people who don't know if they're going to be able to be in their homes from one day to the next. There's something kind of very powerful about that. Um, there's another way in which matzah has been a kind of site um, uh, of controversy around what kind of labor should go behind matzah. And that is in a controversy that you may have heard of before around machine-made matzah. Now, machine-made matzah, this is not, you know, not a space to get into the entirety of the issue. It's huge, it's complicated, it lasts for decades. Um, I wanna kind of give you a little a bit of a window into this um, uh, that I hope will be useful. So for a long time, um, uh, you know, matzah is made by hand, basically up into the 19th century. And then in the 19th century, industrialization catches up to matzah like it catches up to everything else. And in that process, you start having matzah uh, technology that allows the number of people who work on matzah to be decreased, right? Maybe you have one, per instead of having five people who are rolling, now you have one person using some kind of rolling machine. 
The first matchmaking machines, matchmaking machines are already are, exist from the 1830s. They exist mostly in Western Europe, a little bit in Eastern Europe as well. Um, they're pretty rudimentary at the beginning. Um, they're not like they're kind of hand cranked, they're hand used, so they're, they're not complicated machines. Um, but uh, these machines, such as they are, end up being um, hugely controversial. They're controversial for many reasons. One of the reasons is there's a question of, is the matzah actually kosher? Meaning, um, are there bits of chametz or crumbs that can get trapped in the machines that actually make the matzah um, not kosher to eat? Um, there's also objections based on uh, innovation that maybe we should just do it the way we always do it. You know, there's questions around using square matzahs versus round matzahs in part motivated by this. But it seems like the main question the main issue that is, at least initially, that is motivating people around whether it's okay to start using machines to make matzah is that it changes who makes the matzah. The matzah specifically is no longer being made by poor people. And here I wanna show you um, kind of like a little window into the controversy itself. One of the first people to write about this is Rabbi Shlomo Kluger. Um, it's, he's not like leading the, the, the fight against this. There's many people who are doing it. He's kind of like the face of it. Um, and he collects a number of objections to uh, machine-made matzah in a pamphlet. But towards the beginning of the pamphlet, he says, right, the reason for this, for the prohibition on eating machine-made matzah, like the, the primary reason, not, not, the, not just one of the reasons, but actually the first reason, uh, that you are, um, it's basically unethical to eat this matzah because you are stealing from the poor who are kind of like looking to the matzah. What are they looking to the matzah to do? To help them make Pesach, to help them buy the things that they need to, to make a Seder because, you know, Pesach is expensive for everybody and certainly expensive for poor people as well. And so matzah is a way of offsetting the costs um, of making the Seder. He says, um, Right, be through the, the support of producing these matzahs, um, they have uh, this great support to, to kind of prepare their Pesachs. In a way, you can imagine uh, matzahs as kind of having the same function as Girl Scout cookies in that, you know, yes, there are many, many ways that cookies can be sold, but it actually matters that you sell them this way because it's not just about the cookies. It's about the people who are behind it. It's about the entrepreneurship. It's about supporting, uh, it's about supporting girls in this kind of group venture. Like there's a whole bunch of reasons to, to, to have it being, to have it done this way, even if it's not the most efficient. He continues, right? They are they are looking for this. Um, they think they're going to earn money through it for Pesach. And so similarly, Balabatim um, and just kind of ordinary people end up uh, also kind of using, uh, they, they kind of, they, they don't have the practice anymore of uh, using public of giving Maotri um, team, that is to say, they don't give to the charity that people typically give before Pesach. And so this ends up being a kind of replacement uh, for this, right? To have Maotri team. So through the Matzot instead, they're able to kind of 
give a charity that they should be doing through Malchitim anyways. Right, so if they're not doing this, they're basically not only removing Malchitim, um, I'm sorry, they're, they're not only removing uh, sustenance for poor people, they're also kind of removing Malchitim as a category. So basically, one way or another, it's not a good idea to, um, to take this away from poor people. Um, and it actually matters that poor people continue to make matzah and then it not be delegated to machines. Now, there is resistance to this. The main resistance, and it's often curiously published in the same booklet, not frequently, is uh, from uh, Yosef Shul Nathanson, who you know, also gives a, whole, a kind of whole bevy of arguments against this. But one of those arguments is he says, like, listen, at the end of the day, the point is, you have to have matzah on Pesach. Like, that's the mitzvah. The mitzvah is not to support poor people, it's to have matzah on Pesach. And are you telling me that if I happen to have lots of people in my household, I'm actually not allowed to make my own matzah? I have to go to poor people? Which feels kind of like a straw man. I don't think that's what uh, Rabbi Shalom Kluger is arguing, but he's trying to say, like, we can't set up this precedent that um, only poor people are allowed to make matzah. The point here is that you have a practice of matzah. It's kind of like the last stop before matzah becomes like fully industrialized and becomes this product like, like any other product. You have this moment when matzah is still understood as coming from actual human beings, is connected to their labor. And when you eat that matzah at Pesach, you're, you're having a sense, this is not just a kind of anonymous food like every other anonymous food, but actually it has its own kind of history. Um, and that history is important. Um, I want to say, like, this is not just true for matzah. Um, within uh, the, the world of Jewish life, the matzah makers are not the only people who kind of have the status of supporting religious life, of supporting Jewish life. Um, there's a kind of whole economy of people who do this, and those people um, are so frequently forgotten about. It's not just the matzah makers, it's kind of the people who sell kosher wine, it's the people who write Sifre Torah, it's the people who make the ink for Sifre Torah, it's the people who sell books, it's the people who make mezuzot. There's a whole world of people who kind of support the practice, the community practice of Jewish life. Um, and those people are too frequently forgotten about. So I think one thing to remember as we matzah on Pesach is that uh, Judaism is a lot more powerful when you remember that everything kind of comes from somebody. It's not just a kind of anonymous product. Um, and I think, you know, um, if you're looking for, uh, for eating practice as a Pesach, one thing to do might be to kind of pay more attention to where your food comes from, uh, the food that you buy in Pesach, to kind of not just pick foods that happen to have, you know, a P on the label, but to pick foods that um, you have a stronger connection to their production history, whether that means locally made foods, whether that means, you know, uh, fair trade foods, whether that means, you know, shying away from industrially produced foods altogether. But having that sense um, of a connection to the foods, I think is an important piece of what it means to have pizza. Okay. Um, I wanna move from here to a different topic. So I'm actually gonna take a pause uh, and ask if there's any questions about this piece. Um. I, I was just, I just was wondering if you could comment like, um, like the, the sentiment expressed by um, by uh, the first source, right, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Kluger, that I, I could be like misinterpreting him, but like that we need to maintain quasi-monopolistic practices or we were opposed to mechanization 
because we need to support people, right? Like that's that's something you see in Kashrut all the time, right? Like there'll be a pizza shop in a town in America and uh, the Beit Din will say, oh, you can't establish another pizza shop because the competition would impoverish the pizza owner who's Jewish and we need to protect him, right? And like that does impose, like the reason kosher food is so expensive is partially because rabbis like encourage these monopolistic practices um, and like that really imposes costs on people who keep kosher, people who are just trying to buy food for Pesach. Um, like, like do, do you have any like comments or thoughts on like, like, yeah, like we should be supporting these people who are on the verge of poverty, but at the same time, like you don't get to tax every single um, kosher person, like kosher eating person in the world and like impose real costs on people who might be sending their kids to day school and have a lot of expenses on their own. Yeah, it's a really important question. I think uh, part of the answer is that there is no kind of single recipe for how to do this right. And it certainly is possible to have Katra systems that end up kind of, um, you know, um, making costs artificially uh, high, um, you know, can enable fraud, can certainly create um, kind of moral hazards. Like that is, totally possible within the realm of classroom. So this is not to say that like this is always the solution. Certainly, um, you know, uh, today when we are not typically buying matzah that is made in our own cities, the question of like, what does it mean to support the, the poor is, is more complicated, right? Like matzah is normally not being made um, on the, in the in the kind of quantities that is being discussed here or locally is being discussed here. Uh, it's being made in some other way. It's, it's almost always centralized, even if it is handmade. And so like at some point this model breaks down anyways. Um, but I think you're right that these kinds of practices can also um, can also uh, end up hurting people and, and both people who can afford the matzah and also people who honestly can't afford matzah and as well as other kinds of kosher products. Uh, this is a controversy that's kind of playing out right now in Israel, right? Which is considering um, deregulating the kosher industry generally, in part, I think, because of concerns about, you know, you know, if there's one mashkia who comes through your facility and says, oh, you have to use like this guy's oil and that, I'm not gonna give you kosher certification unless you use that person's oil and that person happens to be your cousin, right? Like that's a problem. So um, this can certainly get out of control. Um, what's interesting here is like, it's not happening on the level of certification. It's happening on the level of, there's a kind of um, emergent practice in society around uh, poor making matzah that um, Rabbi Kluger thinks it's important to preserve. Um, I just want to highlight a question from John, and if you don't mind if I read it out for everyone listening. <clears throat> um, did anyone propose using the increased profits from machine matzah to support the poor by kind of, you know, quote unquote, kosher tax like the OU? That's a great idea. I, I'm not sure, actually. Um, I think I'm, if, if not, I, I should have. Um, yeah. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. And I, I have a question. So go. go ahead. No, I'll see if we go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, are you saying hummus is more labor intensive because you have to add a yeast to it to make it to make it rise? I mean, or is it maybe it's hard, maybe it's harder to make if you don't add a yeast. I'm I'm just wondering. Yeah, so it's actually part of this is um it's not about the yeast or not the yeast. It's about um the time it takes to work the dough itself. That like working the dough actually changes the texture of it, right? Um, it it promotes. Um, I am not a chemist, but it promotes um, the development of of um, of gluten uh, within the dough. Um, thank you, Na. Um, and so because of that process, there is actually a 
a change that takes place in the, in the texture um, of the dough and of the final product as a result of baking it. That use can promote that as well, um, as can you know artificial leavening agents like baking powder. Um, but it's it's that's it's not primarily about the chemicals. It's about the time and the work that goes into it. Yeah, and if I can jump in, I know I do bake a little more. It's like I can make something that doesn't that uses old school seor, and but there is time and labor involved in shaping, kneading. There's sometimes active time, there's sometimes lag time, and although now with kind of modern like food processors and other kind of in home home or industrial kitchen tools, one like one housewife can do what would have been the work of, you know, a full kitchen with many either servant slaves or otherwise laborers but that's still time and that's still a resource like even with the fastest <clears throat> fastest rising yeast in the best conditions like i cannot make challah in 18 minutes exactly. um, hey, other questions I, um i kind of was wanted to push to kind of respond to something uh that you said about the people who do the work that supports the community and and sometimes they we have included modern technologies that in some ways make labor better, but that still make some of this work either expensive, even if it's invisible. For the example of sophros, um, things if checking in can is increasingly involving computers. And on one hand, that really speeds up, say, checking your secret Torah, checking your film, checking your mezuzas. Um, but to know how to, when and how to use these new technology tools and to make it in the first place, you still need the old school knowledge and that takes time. That kind of drives up labor. Yeah, Safrut is such an interesting example of this in action, right? Because there are ways in which um, technology is used to speed up the process. There's other ways in which there's strong resistance. The most important being um, resistance to allowing Safrut to be screen printed. Um, even if it will look identical to an actual Sofer or Sofer's writing, um, that has mostly been uh, been disallowed and is is frowned upon. Um, you know, there's no hard and fast rule for for which which technologies to accept and which not. I think part of the question is um, which of these technologies is going to assist people who do this for a living, and which is actually going to make it so that it's no longer possible to do this for a living, right? Like if you if you allow for a screen a screen printing Sifre Torah, then it becomes hard to um, to make a living as a as a software generally because there's just this much cheaper option available. Whereas if you allow for computerized checking, then there still is a need for software software, but at the same time there's a way of speeding up the process. So I think maybe that's that's part of what's going on is there. As well as um, Honestly, what the people in the industry care about, meaning like from the 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 scribes that I know, a lot of them are incredibly thankful for having that kind of computerized software to check their separate Torah. Um, so that makes a big difference as well. Um, let me just check and make sure that if there are any questions in Facebook uh, from our Facebook viewers. And um, uh, uh, they're being they're being a quiet crowd tonight. Okay. I also, uh, just following up on Kayla, if you don't mind, um, I remember someone, someone like talking about like screen printed Sifre Torah. I like, I don't know all that much about it. So I was just curious, are there any halachic objections to like mass printed Sifre Torah other than it jeopardizes the income of 
of Sofrim or Sofrot? So I think for this, as well as honestly for the matzah example, sometimes people will frame it in terms of it's um, economically problematic, but sometimes that economic, the, the fact that it's economically, economically problematic will be framed in other ways. So for example, I mean, in the, in the case of um, screen printing of Torah, the question of does this actually count as writing being the primary one? Like it's not actually writing if you are not literally drawing each and every letter. Um, but I think part of the reason to, um, to that this that that argument is successful and compelling and people use it is because of a kind of underlying uh, concern about the economic uh, interest and the economic viability of writing separatora by hand and what it would mean to like lose a tradition of writing separatora that has literally lasted thousands of years. Um, so it, it's kind of hard to separate the two in the same way that I think this is true for machine made matzah as well. You know, uh, Rabbi Kluger has the primary thing being about um, the economic interest of the poor, but then there's also concerns about um, uh, uh, there's also concerns about about you know matzah. I'm sorry, chametz sneaking its way into the machines themselves and kind of like other small things. But it, it's it's primarily about the economy. Though may I raise, there might be one concern with kind of I guess going turning away from machine matzah is, and even though like we think of it as very cheap, and even though it's not really as cheap as it's sold for, is matzah is a very lingering mitzvah. This is possibly on my mind because of the knock-on effects to Shmura Matzah in Ukraine, but there are people who, there are many people in this world who Pesach is time for Matzah, and while they will go to some extent for it, they will not, like, you know, say maybe drive far away to get it. Though sometimes that has been the case where it's like, you know, you will, you know, if the only Matzah is in Moscow, well, someone's going to Moscow to get all the community's Matzah, and then other times it's like, if there's no Matzah in town, then we're not having it. And having machine matzah makes this a little easier because there's you know no matter how cheap the labor is no matter how cheap the grain is you still need people and you need knowledge to make shmara which and i don't think it can quite scale to the industrial loss leader machine matzah even if again i think there's some pricing concerns which is beyond the scope of this class yeah so um, last thing, and then to go into the, to the next sources, you know, the, the way that it works um, in, in many uh, in many households today seems like actually a good compromise in that there's acceptance both of more, uh, both of handmade matzah and then also machine made matzah. But, you know, for the Seder, you can use handmade matzah, right? Like there's there's a way that it's kind of prioritized, it's given preference, um, even while the machine made matzah is allowed. So that seems like actually a kind of healthy compromise in this situation. Can I just, I'm sorry, like, I, I know we're, we're, I know we're moving on from this. Is this, is, is that practice really helping poor people anymore? Like, are they um, like? Um, it, I can only say not from like the experience of, from like the experience of having friends who are very strict to only eat shmara matzah and not eat machine uh -huh. matzah is if you are only eating shmara matzah over Pesach, it will get very expensive very fast. I, I so, mean, I, but yeah, oh, ahead, but, sorry, oh yeah. but you're talking about from the production end. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, will step away from that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, at, at a certain point, like I said before, the kind of the globalization of it means that having matzah be produced by the local poor in the city is no longer necessarily viable unless someone kind of like specifically sets up an operation that is designed to run on that business model. But it's not going to be emergent in the way that it seems to have been um, in Europe in the 19th century. So, so Rabbi Shlomo Kluger won, but he didn't end up protecting, like in the long term, Rabbi Shlomo Kluger won the debate in a certain sense or a, a territory of the debate, 
but he didn't end up helping the people he wanted to help anyway. Like poor people aren't really being protected by this. And a lot of Haredi people who only eat more matzah are quite poor. In fact, perhaps the poorest people of the Orthodox community. And they're the ones who are suffering because of Rabbi Shlomo Kluger's opinion. So I, I wouldn't say that he won, and I don't think his opponent, I don't think uh, Rabbi Yosef Nathanson won uh, either. I think they both achieved some success. And like for a while, it's kind of, it kind of goes from community to community. There's different practices about where it's acceptable and where it's not. But eventually, the kind of the globalization of food itself kind of makes it all kind of move, at least for this particular situation. All right, I want to move on to the next verses. I want to make sure we have a little bit of time left. Um, where we're shifting gears a little bit. Part of the reason I want to bring you the second set of sources is because um, I noticed over the last three classes, a lot of the questions were around um, how do we think about Torah um, as a kind of work, right? We talked about how the rabbis um, understand the, the practice of learning Torah and interpreting Torah on the model of artisanship that is a kind of artisanal practice and the Torah is understood either as a kind of raw material or understood as a tool. But I kind of like, you know, shy away from the question of well, what does that mean in terms of actually spending your time doing Torah versus spending your time doing some other practice. So I want to spend at least a few minutes looking at that material now. Um, here I want to start with a passage from the Mechelta, which I think is kind of uh, beautifully introduced to the topic. Okay, it's kind of Machlok and Mechelta. You know, if you just do a little bit of, you, read, you study a couple of halachot in the morning, you study a couple of halachot in the evening, that's good enough. It's as though you had learned the entire, as though you had fulfilled the entire Torah. So, Rabbi Yeshua, at least as I understand it, suggesting a, a kind of way of approaching Torah, which allows for, um, you know, allows for work to exist at the same time. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai has a somewhat different understanding of how Torah should be learned. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai Omer, lo nitna Torah lidrosh, elel ochle haman. The only people who are allowed to um, interpret Torah are people who eat man. That is to say, man being a food that no one works for, literally falls out of the sky and is ready to eat. So people whose sustenance is kind of as easy for them to acquire as man, those are the people who get to learn Torah. Right, so we're talking about people who they literally have no idea where their food and drink comes from, they don't know where their clothing comes from. They're just studying Torah. Now, the, the fact that it's coming out of the mouth of Rabbi Shimon Yochai is significant. Rabbi Shimon Yochai, in a different story, which will become, a, you know, we, we look at sometimes around Lagba Omer, um, has him and his son literally covered up to their necks in sand, you know, um, studying Torah all day, being sustained in a cave for years on end. So, like, this is the poster child for a person who studies Torah um, and is supported um, uh, through sustenance that he himself does not uh, do any work to achieve. Right? So his understanding is that the way Torah should be studied, like what it means to study Torah is in these circumstances, like Torah needs to kind of come before anything. And really the only way to study Torah is if it kind of crowds out um, all other needs, your other needs are met. Are, are, are met. So there's a machlokat about kind of which model do you follow. But besides the machlokat, I want you to think for a second about what it means to have Torah be produced by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. What kinds of Torah comes out of such a person, right? What kinds of Torah come out of a person who is 
never, never needs to make their own food, never needs to make their own clothes, who is basically um, completely, you know, sustained without any need to interact with the outside world. The Torah that comes out of that person might not be the Torah that people in the rest of the world who do have to do all those things can relate to strongly. And I think it's worth thinking about not just which mode in which you should learn Torah, but the way that Torah is generated as, as a result of it. As opposed to what it means to have Torah that is produced alongside some kind of work practice, right? If you do if you produce Torah, but you also have to work at the same Torah time, that means you are thinking about kind of competing interests, you're thinking about uh, fatigue as an important piece of, of one's day and, and one's life. Um, and you're thinking about work itself. You're thinking about like what it means to create Torah around work, around work ethics, things like that. Um, I think today we, we take it for granted that it's valuable to have Torah from people who um, are also working, right? There's a huge amount of Torah that's created today um, for specifically for people who do not get to live like Rav Shimbar Yochai, who do not get to spend their whole day um, learning and instead kind of like, you know, do a couple halachot in the morning and a couple halachot in the evening and that's their day. Um, the kind of the paradigmatical example of this, and there's probably others, but the one that like, kind of like I find personally inspiring is uh, Pinchas Kahati. So Pinchas Kahati of the Kahati Mishnayot um, dies in 1976, lives in Israel. He is a bank teller. That's his, that's his job. He's a bank teller, he's a bank teller for Bank of Mizrahi for like years and years and years. Um, and basically what happens is he's learning Mishnah. There is a kind of, you know, Mishnah Yomit practice that ha that's happening around him. And every day he writes a commentary on two Mishnayot. That's it. Just kind of like to pass around among him and his friends. Eventually he makes it, you know, not too much a day. He makes it 14 much a week. But like basically he's just making it because it's helpful for him and for people like him. So the, the kind of the Torah that's produced by and for bank tellers um, is kind of like there's a power to that Torah. There's a power to that Torah that I think um, that Rosh Yechai is not able to fully capture. Now, this might be the paradigm of, you know, um, Either you know Torah should be your whole life, or Torah is something that fits in the cracks. But both Rabbi Shimon and I'm, I'm sorry, uh, both Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai have underneath their positions this idea that first comes work, and then comes Torah. So either you kind of like try to do no work at all and do lots of Torah, or you do lots of work and then Torah fits in the crack. But for both of them, there's this idea that you have to start with work as being a necessity. And then kind of Torah fits in whenever you can. Um, there's other uh, texts in rabbinic literature that suggest maybe you don't have to think about it like that. Maybe there are different ways of thinking about the relationship between Torah and work that are um, uh, perhaps a little bit more holistic um, and allow you to think more uh, directly about what role you want Torah to have in your life. Here I want us to look at um, uh, Mishnah and Kiddushin. We're not going to do the whole Mishnah. We're just going to do pieces because there's a lot going on here. The beginning of this mission in Kudushin actually, I think, is something, I'm not sure if we looked at this or something similar to this uh, in a previous class. It's about the kinds of work that one should do. So anybody whose work um, brings them into close contact uh, with women should not be secluded with them um, as a practice. But I think part of what's going on here is saying that um, professionally, it's probably not a good idea to be in those situations in the first place. And, you know, it's better to choose a, a, a profession that does not lead to these situations. And again, as we said last time, we're bracketing this question of like this mission of being directed entirely to men. Um, you know, I, I think that's beyond the scope of this class. 
then says, you also should not teach your child uh, women's, a women's trade, which I think in this context probably means work, uh, again, that uh, brings you into contact with women. Try to teach your, your child clean and kind of simple work, easy work. So do simple work, do clean work, and in addition, you should daven, you should pray to the one to whom all wealth and all goods belong for sustenance. Why? Because you ultimately don't get to pick how much money you make. You can't decide, I'm going to make a lot of money or I'm going to make a little money. To some degree, there is going to be um, some amount of variation there. The best you can do is choose a kind of job that you can live with, that you feel like you're comfortable with, that you feel like reflects your values, and then kind of hope that the rest falls into place. If this is the case, at the end of the Mishnah, we kind of take a step further. So after the, after the three dots um, and the fourth line down, Rabbi Naharai Omer, like leave aside all of the all professions. I decided I'm just going to teach my kids Torah. Why? Because other trades are not like Torah, right? So a person um, for Torah, a person is not just benefiting in this world, they're benefiting in the next world as well. Um, for other professions um, as well, once you become sick or you're unable to do them, that's kind of it, um, right? So if you become sick, uh, right? you just like, you die because like you can't do anything else. Aval Torah ain't okay. So Torah is different because it kind of preserves you, it protects you from uh, from wickedness as well, and so there is a kind of there's a help that Torah provides that other kinds of work cannot provide. So um, between Rabbi Nehorai and Rabbi Meir, there is this sense that yeah, you could kind of structure your life in terms of um, uh, I'm going to start with the work and then Torah will fall in the cracks. Or you could say like, listen, I only have some amount of ability to control what my life is going to look like anyways. I may as well choose a life that allows for Torah study to happen. Um, now, the kind of like big asterisk next to this is that very often people who choose lives like this are implicitly kind of relying on other people to support them as well, right? Like it's not like the, the money kind of magically appears it happens because there is a kind of interplay between people who choose to spend most of their time studying Torah and people who spend their time doing business. And there's lots and lots of examples um, in halakha, in Jewish history, of this kind of uh, interplay. Maybe the most famous of this, and we don't have time to look at the text itself, but maybe the most famous example of this um, is the Rambam. And so uh, the Rambam um, has, you know, spends his entire life um, basically writing um, 
interestingly, the Rambam is not really like a public figure in his life. He, you know, he's, he's public in the sense that he's writing tons of letters, but he's not a person who's kind of getting up and giving sermons. He's just writing his books and he's writing lots of books. And part of the reason he can do this is because he has a brother, David, who is a merchant, who is, uh, Rambam probably had some stake in his business. And because of that, he was able to sustain himself. Notably, at some point, um, uh, uh, his brother uh, dies. It seems like there was some kind of shipwreck um, when he was on a trip to India. And as a result, the Rambam needs to kind of, in the end of his life, take on additional practices, um, including be kind of becoming, uh, you know, a doctor to the Sultan and things like that. But part of this kind of comes about because he, he doesn't have that support uh, that he did previously. Um, so there is this model that, that exists, um, and it's, it's a well-supported model. Um, this model already has evidence, there's already evidence for in the Mishnah, right? In Mishnah Megillah, it says, What does it mean? What's the definition of a big city? A big city is a city where there's 10 people who have, which has 10 idlers. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to translate this, but basically 10 people who aren't kind of engaged in normal labor. How are, is it possible that they're not engaged in a normal labor? Because there's enough people in that society, in that community, that they have their needs taken care of in some way or another. That's the kind of the, the evidence, that's the kind of the, um, um, the mark of a, a kind of developed and good society is to have this possibility. Um, there are more sources to study, but I want to make sure we have at least a few minutes for questions. Um, so I think we're going to end here. Um, I want to say, first of all, thank you for studying me today. And thank you for studying with me as well for the last few classes. It's been a real pleasure learning with all of you over the last few weeks. Um, I really enjoyed it. And so let me just leave a few minutes for questions at the end. It's, inter it's interesting to kind of see the ways in which the Yomi's, the Nach Yomi, the Mishnah Yomi, the whatever fit into kind of the two models that you presented, that, that you kind of highlighted of making Torah fit in your life with work and how that, and even though these are much, I guess, more modern developments, they, like they reading, they fit when reading back. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And one thing that you know, certainly I'm very grateful for is that we're at a time in Jewish history when Torah is more accessible than it has ever been at any point. And the kinds of Torah that get produced are, are different and, um, and wilder and more imaginative than there would be uh, in other circumstances. So um, there's something really special about that. Part of that is sustained, honestly, by people who kind of live in this space, who are kind of, you know, kind of on the business end of things and also kind of in the Torah end of things. Um, you know, as an example of this, right? Safari as a project, right? It's sustained both by people who are, you know, incredibly learned, but also people who have incredible programming skills who are trying to combine those two things. Um, if you had people who were only in the world of, of learning and were not involved in computer science, you wouldn't have anything like that existing, right? And it actually requires that kind of deep integration of work and Torah uh, in a really powerful and a really beautiful way. Um, You've had, there's been models of this for, you know, literally hundreds of years. Um, some of the first people to, um, to think seriously about, about printing books of halacha are people who are engaged in the printing business because like that's their business. Um, and they're kind of like acutely aware of like the, the economics of printing, uh, you know, what makes for a successful book, what doesn't. There's something powerful about that too. And so this is like a kind of continuation of that.
Um, and anyone on Facebook, you know, you are not forgotten. Please feel free to ask questions. But what can I say? Um, it's been a pleasure to have you David's be teaching here these past few weeks, and I'm glad that we got to finish up finish up the class and bring in this new material. Um, if I may uh, plug a future class, uh, there's one, the last class of our pre-Pesach spring Zman is coming up next week on April 12th, called with Seder telling. And as we've been talking about Pesach, about Pesach which maybe this does feel a bit appropriate, Seder telling is a kind of group bringing together a group of scholars to tell um, the story of Pesach in real time, as they did in B'nai Brak in the times of the Mishnah. If that sounds like something uh, up your sleeve, you are welcome to sign up at pesach.risha.org, and where you can and you can also hear about several about recordings of previous Pesach-related classes and catch up on catch up on some learning, learn something new to bring this later, listen to something uh, as you clean. It is all there. <laughs>